Fasten your seatbelts. It's going to be a bumpy night. All these girls gonna be in the league? Hello, gorgeous. Female fight club. All men must die, but we are not men. Damn it, Kristen! What do you think happened to Karen? Lauren. Girl, her name is Kimberly. Hello and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where sometimes four, today just three, film critics that are all women talk about everything that's great and terrible in the land of Hollywood. Today we're talking about a little bit of both. Um, I am joined as always, oh, I'm Karen Peterson, and I am joined as always by Kristen Lopez. Hello, hello. And Lauren Humphreys Brooks. Hello. And once again, Kimberly Pierce is out gallivanting, although this time she is enjoying the visage of Domhnall Gleeson in his new, amazing, super literary film, Peter Rabbit. Um, she is going to see the beautiful love story that happens between a young man and a rabbit. It just looks like a thing of beauty, and I just can't it's, wait to hear it's all gonna about make, how much she loves it's it. Gonna make, it's gonna make Call Me By Your Name look like garbage, I'm assuming, okay? It's gonna be the love story for the ages. The only sad thing is that my sweet baby angel, Timothy Chalamet, could not play Peter Rabbit, so... <laughs> <laughs> we love you, Kim. We love you so much. And I hope that you are having fun in spite of yourself. She's probably sitting there like, I, A, I'm going to get so much shit for this tomorrow, and B, I have to watch this goddamn movie. No, I predict she's enjoying it more than she will ever admit. That's what I think. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Because, you know, let's just face it. Definitely. Yeah. Okay. So, there's a lot to talk about this week that it's like all kind of lumped into garbage people, um, which apparently is everyone's favorite topic for us to discuss. So let's just go right into it. Um, okay, so back before the holidays, Kristen and I, we were talking about the fact that we kept hearing rumors that someone really huge was coming down the line, and that has never really happened. And I'm starting to think maybe it won't because now we're at the like bottom of the barrel because this week... Scott Bayo was accused. That huge star of yesteryear. Um, who wants to fill us in on what happened? It goes back to Nicole so, Eggert. Yeah, so um, apparently Nicole Eggert, who worked with Scott Bayo back when he did the luminous television masterpiece, Charles and George. Um, I wasn't born, so I don't really remember <laughs> oh, it. Oh, thanks um, for making but, me feel really old. <laughs> I used to watch that sorry, show all sorry, the Karen. time. <laughs> Uh, I know of it. I know of it. So, um, but she put out a series of tweets pretty much um, saying that he had molested her on numerous occasions from the ages of 14 to 17. Um, He, much like our president, loves Twitter and proceeded to send out a flurry of tweets and Facebook Live videos saying that it never happened, that... um, she came to his um, house at at 18 totally 18 and they had a consensual relationship once she was 18 um, and that she has been his best friend ever since he doesn't know where this is coming from now if you read the gossip blogs that I do um, that are not showy like Perez Hilton but are actually like ingrained in Hollywood 
this was not news. And she's actually had these claims since, um, I want to say 2012, she started talking about this and no one cared. And now that, you know, the, the movement is happening, she said she felt that people would finally listen. So I, I believe this. Um, it does, I mean, it doesn't help that Scott Bayo, depending on your political preferences, is batshit insane. Um, <laughs> but I mean, he's acting like this is all new. No, if you actually do your due diligence, she's been talking about this for several years. Um, I want to say either 2012 or 2001. I don't know where that's coming from, but I want to say that these these are not new allegations. These have been something that she has talked about before. He's using the argument that when she was asked a couple years ago if she would do a um, Charles in Charge reboot with Scott Baio, she said that she would. Um, and he's using that as, well, this isn't true. So, yeah, I always knew Scott Baio was kind of an asshole, but now he's garbage person, so there you go. Officially. Anybody have any thoughts? Um, no. I mean, if he was more relevant, I think we'd care, you know, right. like, whether he feels bad. I mean, I feel for, you know, Nicole Eggert, the victim, but, um, you know. Well, I think what's, um, I think the thing that, there, there are two interesting points about this. One is Scott Baio is a very loud defender of Donald Trump on Twitter. And I just I, I just find that interesting that, you know, it's like, okay, so do we have a whole heap of garbage people that are all in, like, for other reasons, you know, defend, like, they're all part of this Donald Trump camp. The other thing is that this isn't the first time that someone has made accusations years ago and now, finally, people are listening to them. And I think that's a bigger point is, I mean, look at a lot of these people, these women that have come forward, they're talking about things that people have known about for years and never did anything. So it's like, right, you know. And this is this is coming out around the same time. This this hasn't gotten nearly the traction. I think it's sad, but I don't know if you guys saw this on Twitter, but Alex Winter who was one half of Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure, said that as a child star that he was molested by a certain person in Hollywood who has since died. And so you have all these these people now from the 80s, you know, actors who are finally feeling comfortable enough in 2018 to yeah. say what's happened to them. Yeah, it's, I mean, I'm glad that they're finally able to come forward and, and, um, and be believed because that's so important. But at the same time, it really, I mean, part of the problem and part of the reason it's taken so long is because for so many years, people just wouldn't listen to them. Right. Yeah. I, I would be interesting to see, you know, how far, how far back this goes. Um, you know, we, we have classic Hollywood abusers that are still living. Looking at you, Kirk. But yeah. Um, <laughs> well, you know, the just... good die young. That's why he's still going. Oh, that's true. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, along the lines of people that are talking uh, about people that we've known about for years, A.O. Scott had an op-ed this week about Woody Allen. Who would like to talk about that one? I'm going to throw that to Lauren because I know she's read it and I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> uh, all right. Well, so so A.O. Scott's op-ed about Woody Allen is, is basically him... I mean, it's an interesting article. I've also read a couple of interesting rebuttals to it, or not not rebuttals, but basically saying like this is approaching approaching film criticism from the wrong perspective, which 
It's something that can A.O. Scott can be accused of from time to time. <laughs> uh, um, uh, so yeah, he wrote uh, an article about Woody Allen, an op-ed about Woody Allen, basically sort of coming to terms with his, his personal feelings about Woody Allen's films and the place that uh, his films have occupied both in A.O. Scott's critical life, his personal life, and also in the way that we treat, you know, uh, the, the films of directors like Alan, who have been known for a very long time to be, have at least been accused of abuse, you know, and, and the, the two big ones are obviously Alan and Roman Polanski. Uh, and the place that critics have in terms of shoring up those directors' um, places in the artistic canon. And I thought it was a really interesting article it's worth reading it's also worth reading some of the responses to it uh there was a very good article and now i'm blanking on um where the interview actually was but it was discussing it was uh two critics discussing this idea of having of not being able to separate the art and the artist and how it's actually sort of a misuse of bart uh at bart's death of the author because there is a sense in which we do have to be able to look at a piece of art as a piece of art and stop bringing in and stop giving the artist total control over how we understand their art and how we interpret it, uh, which is the point of Bart. It's kind of been used as, as a, an excuse for saying like, okay, well, we, we can have this problematic person on the one side, but we can, we can still like their art on the other. And that's not quite what Bart is up to. And of course, we're applying Bart, who is talking about literature to um, to filmmaking, which is its own animal and its own medium. And as a few people have pointed out, a Woody Allen movie is not just a Woody Allen movie, it's also a Diane Keaton movie, it's also a Mia Farrow movie. Um, it's, and it has its own place that exists outside of the meaning that the director or the writer actually gives it. So interesting article. Um, I'm somewhere in the middle. I've talked about my Polanski issues. <laughs> <laughs> in the past and I still have them uh, because on the one side I you know I, I basically feel about Roman Polanski the way that A.O. That Scott feels about Woody Allen is that his films mean a lot to me uh, for numerous reasons at the same time I know and I have known pretty much ever since I started watching Roman Polanski's films that he has done horrible horrible things and it's difficult, you know, where your place as a viewer, as a critic, as a fan, where do you say, like, I can't, I, I can't even participate in this anymore? Uh, and that's a, that's a hard line to draw, and I've been struggling with it uh, for months. <laughs> yeah. I know. I've, I've had a, a hard time with that, too. I, one of the paragraphs in the article, he says, the old defenses are being trotted out again. Like much else that used to sound like common sense, they have a tinny, clueless ring in present circumstances. The separation of art and artist is proclaimed rather desperately, it seems to me, as if it were a philosophical principle rather than a cultural habit buttressed by shophorn academic dogma. But the notion that art belongs to a zone of human experience, somehow distinct from other human experiences, is both conceptually incoherent and intellectually crippling. Art belongs to life, and anyone, critic, creator, or fan, who has devoted his or her life to art knows as much. And, yeah, I mean, it, it, I am struggling with this more and more. As all these names have come out over the last several months, it's like, you know, it's getting hard to watch a film and see someone's name pop up in the credits, or 
see someone's face on the screen and it's like I just I don't know what to do with this and I think for me right now it's like okay I'm just gonna take a pause and like decide down the road how I feel I guess I you know you really sometimes can't make a lasting decision in the moment so for now well, if I feel uncomfortable I'll turn something off and if I don't I'll keep going you know and and I I do I do agree with the some of the criticisms of Scott's argument that this is a miss that he's misusing you know the, the tired academic dogma which I'm I'm assuming because he's talking about art versus artist is he's he's misusing Bart right um, it, it's and I think that there's definitely an argument to be made there at the same time he's also right I mean every time we talk about films every time we talk about the importance of a film or laud a director's brilliance or an actor's brilliance or anything like that, we're making a contribution to the culture. And we're, and the fact that we're saying like that these, these people, primarily men, have made a contribution to the culture and you know, how do we understand that in view of the things that we know that they have done or that they have been accused of doing? Uh, and, uh, and I do have to say, one of my good friends on, and I talk to him on Twitter all the time, we went to NYU together, uh, he's a very intelligent film critic, Trey Lawson, uh, said, you know, maybe art is made by very complicated people and we can't make final moral judgments on them. And that's true. I mean, uh, in terms of the Polanski issue, you know, on the one hand, his wife was violently murdered he lived through the holocaust right he's been a victim on the other hand he has victimized people and how do we understand all of that in terms of the films that he makes many of which are about victims and victimization right so who the hell knows i don't know <laughs> yeah well and I, I think that i think it's a question that is has a different answer for everybody and i think that uh, what's right for me and what makes me feel comfortable and able to go forward isn't necessarily going to fit for either of you. And I think we also need to be respectful of each other in those situations. Like, if I don't feel comfortable mm -hmm. watching a film, I shouldn't be ridiculed for that, you know? And vice versa. Right. I mean, and I mean, it goes, it extends to people that haven't been labeled, you know, in the sense that they have been accused of stuff or they've done things. Like I, and it's one of the questions that I came up with that we'll talk about later, I like Adrian Lyne as a director. Adrian Lyne movies are totally fucked up from a modern day perspective, whether you're watching something like Flashdance, which I watched for the first time this weekend, <laughs> and I was like, oh dear lord, this movie is atrocious. It's poorly made, but it also has a relationship where Adrian Lyne movies always deal with the power dynamic between men and women, especially when it comes to sex. And so I was watching this where, you know, Jennifer Beals is dating her boss, and I'm like, oh god, 2018 mentality, that doesn't work. So you have that, but then you watch something else, and you start noticing that it's like a pattern with him. Like, just weird, disturbing things are a pattern, and then you hear stories about how, you know, he would tell the actresses certain things or he would keep things from them so that he would get those, you know, that Bertolucci stuff where he wouldn't tell people, women, what was going on. So, and then you watch Lolita and it's just all fucking weird. So I was watching this and I was thinking, I like these movies, but what does that say about me as a viewer? And what does that say about Hollywood as, as a business? That those, these two things are coming together. 
Um, and so you really have, it, it requires all of us, I think, to be more active viewers than we ordinarily once were because you're dealing with a whole movement of this is no longer acceptable, but you have hundred some odd years of movie history that you enjoy and you have to ask yourself why you enjoy that. What does that say about you? What does that say about filmmaking and this history of filmmaking? Much like racism is not boiled boil down to one individual, you have to look at the system and and how that plays into things. Um, so yeah, I've had I've had a very interesting weekend of like internally assessing myself while watching nine and a half weeks. Um, so very interesting set, uh, thing that that happened. <laughs> Okay. All right. So let's turn slightly now to a person who actually we talked about the very first episode, and that is, oh, yeah, Devin Faraci is back in the news because, of course, he is. Um, Lauren, why don't you go ahead and let us know what's happening with Devin Faraci? Uh, well, let me pull up the article again. Okay. Sorry. Well, I've got it right here, and here, I'll just give a little bit of a brief update. So, um, all right. So, The Hollywood Reporter had an article this week, um, and they they talk about Devin Fracci. Well, it's not about him. He's just a big part of it. But basically, they're doing a PBS um, special, Me Too, What's Next? And it's all about the Me Too movement. And... The series includes a bunch of interviews with people from lots of different industries, um, business, from academia, from restaurant industry, and also from film. And so, you know, they decided to not just talk to victims, but they also wanted to talk to uh, some other people who have been disgraced in the last few months. And one of the names that popped up was Devin Faraci. And uh, so it says, The series begins by examining the factors that enabled harassment in the workplace to endure, despite laws that made it illegal. It also explores how images of women in film, TV, and video games have contributed to the objectification of women in the workplace. Um, But yeah, so for some reason, they decided to talk to Devin Faraci. And it was, um, just to recap quickly... Uh, Devin Faraci worked for Birth Movies Death. He, um, when the Trump Access Hollywood tapes came out during the campaign, he went on a Twitter rant because, of course, he did. He was very good at that. And someone said, hey, remember when you did that to me a long time ago? And he's just like, oh, I don't, but I'm sorry. I'm going to apologize for something I have no memory of because it's likely I did it, right? Um, so then supposedly he was fired. From Birth Movies Death and, and Alamo Draft House is the owner of that site. And um, then a year later, less than a year later, it turned out, oh, he had actually been working for them for a long time. And it's not really clear if his employment ever actually stopped and restarted or if he had just been employed the whole time. Anyway, when it came out in September, um, then he apparently finally resigned and... If he has been working in the industry, he's been very, very quiet about it since because there doesn't seem to be any evidence of that, but now he's back. So, Lauren. Yeah, and... <laughs> oh, or Kristen. Either one. 
Oh, I was going to say, and, and a lot of the comments, and I, I heard somebody who said that they had seen this PBS special, which has since been deleted. <laughs> um, but they had said that it fuels um, just this kind of shamey atmosphere against women, that it didn't really do a whole lot based on what they'd seen. Again, those tweets have been deleted. Um, but that Farachi, his quotes are pretty much an attempt to deflect and say that, oh, he's working on himself. He didn't understand that he, you know, was that guy when it was happening. Um, he limits a lot of his actions to just the one specific incident that we know about. It does not seem that he's talking about the systemic attempts that he made against other people online. Uh, I mean, this is a guy that told somebody to kill themselves on the internet. Um, mm -hmm. So, you know, it's... Farachi as a personality was based on more than just being a sexual assaulter um and for for the discussion that i was having with with um, some fellow writers was that you know oh well farachi sounds sincere he needs to make money what is the problem now and you know how much more work does he have to do what specifically does he have to do to get people to understand that his his sincerity is real and i i responded to them he never went away you know we don't know if if alamo draft house ever fired him you know so there were no real consequences other than he just you know didn't go out in public he still showed up at events that alamo sponsored he was still in contact with women knowing you know and alamo knew that he had had issues with women and he's still in these situations and you know people were saying well you know he needs to have a job he needs to make a living that's fine i'm not saying that we need to label him like a convicted felon and he doesn't get a you know it, it should be hell for him to get a job he's in the same industry he never technically left where is this concern for the women who are going to have to be put in contact with him every day that are in the same locations you know alamo draft house has seemingly said oh he's you know we vouch for him you know and that just puts more impetus on them to watch him like a hawk um i know people that know devin farachi and i've had arguments with people that know devin farachi that say he had a massive drinking problem he's doing a lot of work on him he's doing a lot of work on himself you don't know him so, you know, you can't judge. Yes, but I'm also a woman in this industry that goes to events. And I would like, it's like saying, I live next door to a child molester. I'd like to know that I could go to school and not have to worry about that. I mean, it's, it's the temptation factor. Don't put an alcoholic in a bar. You know, I mean, I'm just, I'm not understanding this logic that he has to make money, so he has to be in the same industry. You know, he can't do anything else. And I think that this giving him a public platform on PBS to explain is just going to make that legitimate. That, oh, he's done the work, he's done, we need to move on. And women, you should totally not be afraid to go near him. Right. Well, yeah, exactly. I mean, this whole thing... You know, I'm amazed because we started this podcast when the Farachi stuff came up again. Right. And now it's coming up yet again, and we're having the same fucking conversation. 
it's exhausting. Yeah, I, I'm in, uh, Kristen, I'm in complete agreement with you. I, I keep on, like, I see this stuff and I'm just, and, and you see people justifying him. You see people being like, well, he's got to make a living. It's just like, sure. But that doesn't mean that, that he is owed a job in film criticism. That doesn't mean that he should be in any way involved in this industry at all. Like, first of all, he made it, very little actual contribution to the world of film criticism except being a troll and a bully mm -hmm. right he wasn't that good of a writer he wasn't that smart he doesn't know that much about film i'm sorry i'm sorry birth movies death that's the way it fucking is exactly right? on and then on the other side of it just like so you're saying that we should be nice to a guy who has been accused of sexual assault who has who we know has been a bully who has told people to kill themselves over Star Wars movies, right? Mm -hmm. And this is somehow something that we should, oh, we, he has a drinking problem. We should forgive him. We should be nice to him. Just like, no, I do not want to think about this man being in the same fucking room with me or anyone that I know. And if I ever see him, I will tell him that to his face. Yeah. I will be perfectly comfortable doing that. Well, and it's and fucking ridiculous. We started. I'm, I'm sorry. We <laughs> no, started yeah. this this podcast talking about Farachi and Knowles, and yeah. from what I've always assumed, Harry Knowles never went away either. Because what is it? His sister runs the site now, and right. there was never any proof that. Do we even know if Harry Knowles has a sister? Like, <laughs> is it just Harriet Knowles? Maybe I don't know. Um, you know. We didn't. We don't let these guys go away because I don't know. Because the film criticism industry is so desperate for male content, we can't let a few a few <laughs> bad apples go because God forbid we can't replace them. I mean, I don't. I don't understand what the logic is. You know, we're in because... a time now in film criticism where we're saying sites hire women, hire people of color, hire non-binary, and yet we're arguing over two subpar writers not having a job like because they dude. have buddies they they have yeah. friends they have people men and, and that's women. all it is i mean i and at this point i would just love you know what would be really refreshing somebody just admitted that like if a tim lee came out today and said you know what yeah he's my buddy i'm gonna give him a job and that's really all there is to it you know what i would be pissed but at least it would be fucking honest yeah uh, absolutely i mean i and, you know, we talked about the whole Fantastic Fest thing, which is, you know, it, it'll be interesting to see what people have to say this year. Because uh, last year we had a whole lot of articles justifying why this isn't a problem, why we need to have, you know, my, my favorite phrase from that time period, constructive conversations. Yeah. Right? That we're not having, in, we're not actually having in public, it's just being had at Fantastic Fest among a small group of people who aren't actually talking about what is being said. But, so, you know, we've, but we've had constructive conversations, just like, yeah, and we see what the fucking result is of those constructive conversations. Nothing has changed. Yeah, not very constructive. And, yeah, no, absolutely not. The, it's, it's maddening, and, you know, you can't say, I can't say that this is only on um, problematic men, because there are a fuckload of women that keep on making these kinds of justifications. So now we have to see Devin Faraci's face on a PBS series about the, about Me Too. You know, great. Great. Yeah. Um, by the way, Harry Knowles loved Winchester, as he said on Twitter yesterday. <laughs> oh, well, then that explains why 
Yeah. Oh so yeah, God. no, That's he's never guy. gone away. I I just had to look. I was like, wait a second, because I remember I was trolling him for several weeks because he was still tweeting all this crap every day, and I was like, every day I'm like, really, really, why are you still here? <laughs> and uh, finally, I got tired of it, so I gave up. But yeah, um, well, yeah, I I just I don't even know what to do with this anymore. And the thing is, like. People now, they want to talk about, like, what you're saying, you know, they want to talk about, can these people come back? It's like, why? Why do they have to? You exactly, know? why? They're, these are not such indispensable voices. Right. That, you know, they have to, they have to be present in the conversation. It's like, and that doesn't mean that, you know, they should die or anything like that. They should just not be a part of this industry, period. Right. And there's no reason to give them another chance to be a part of that industry. You know what? Fuck Devin Faraci. He could go work somewhere else. Yeah, well, this part of the Hollywood Reporter article, <laughs> uh, where it's talking about why they talked to Devin and everything. So, Salby, who is the one doing the, the um, documentary, the PBS show says, uh, okay, so Salby won't, re- won't reveal who else she's interviewed for the series, but she knows that her goal with the series is to have those uncomfortable conversations. She talks about her experience of going from shock and anger and then deciding, okay, what do I do with this? Salby says of Caroline, who was the accuser of Devin Faraci. Mm-hmm. It was fascinating for me, his experience and hers. He was known for being a horrible personality and not caring about anyone, and then all of a sudden his life is basically destroyed to now he's sleeping on the sofa of a friend. Good! Like, <laughs> good! Yeah, I that's, don't that's fucking my problem. <laughs> that is That is my problem. And that goes back to how we treat rape in this country. That is at the heart of rape culture in this country. That your argument is, you know... He was an asshole. He told people to kill themselves. That was all on the internet. And then he actually does this horrible physical thing. And it's so sad that he has to, you know, have some suffering. Like, dude, think about all the women that have been... I mean, it's like... It's like feeling bad... Okay, we talked about this last week. It's like feeling bad for Larry Nasser. Like... Oh, he was just a doctor who was doing stuff. I mean, he was a horrible human being, but now he's in jail and he has to listen to all these women talk shit about how hor- uh, much of a horrible person. Like, no, you know that there is no sympathy there. There should be no sympathy for his actions. Then why do we care that Devin Faraci is sleeping on somebody's couch? You know what? Welcome to the life of a struggling fucking writer. Like... Dude, yeah. you aren't special. You are not a unique snowflake who has to struggle and deci- decide how you're going to eat that day. You know what? That's the decision of everybody who takes on this 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 job. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Well, another name did pop up this week as far as accusations go, and this is someone that <laughs> was it Kim that tweeted that sent us the link, and the title was written so badly to the article. But, um, basically, I cannot pronounce this guy's name, um, Vincent Ciraccioni, he's a manager and a producer, he manages people like Taraji P. Henson, and has represented Halle Berry in the past, and now he's been He discovered both of them, essentially. Okay, there you go. Yeah. And, uh, three women have gone on record with claims against him, saying that he sexually harassed them- 
And this goes back to, like, 1993. So this is 93 to 2011. Three of the women allege that he asked them for sex as a condition of him taking them on his clients. And when they refused, he said he would not represent them. So this is another one. I mean, this is like, you know, it's, it's easy to talk about Weinstein or, or Woody Allen or these, you know, very high profile people, but you've got so many people behind the scenes that are helping bring these actresses to, you know, getting to where they are and they're doing the same things. I mean, this is this is a systemic industry-wide problem. Um, does anybody want to talk about this? Any comments? I think the the one big thing that that is worth pointing out is that the accusers are all women of color. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And we are seeing a bit of a backlash right now in terms of women of color stories not getting the same traction as as white women's stories. So. Honestly, I'll be interested to see how long this stays in the in the news cycle because I don't. I, unfortunately, I don't think it'll be very long. It should be probably not. Yeah, um, Halle Berry, who did work with him, she uh, she tweeted the other night. Uh, I'm livid that he used me and the role model he helped me become to lure and manipulate innocent, vulnerable women of color for his predatory actions. So yeah. Well, that's the other thing. These these men using. Using the women that they've worked with, the women that they have, quote, made. Yeah. uh, As sort of ends to get more vulnerable um, young actresses, uh, etc., into into their fold and to to exploit them. So you you have this also, this uh, hierarchy that exists so clearly in Hollywood. I mean, it exists in most industries, but exists so clearly in Hollywood because of the way that the industry is set up that... uh, these these guys actually using their their clout, their famous clients or famous previous clients, to get the to get young women that they then abuse, and uh, and that's another discussion that is going to have to be had. I I am at the point I'm I'm back at the point of just like can we just burn it all to the ground, and then we'll just start over completely, just clean like everybody gets fired from now right now. I am fine with that. Let's do it. <laughs> just start They're over. We're all fired. Everyone. Yep. Just get rid of them. Yeah. I agree. Kristen, any other thoughts? We got way more garbage men to talk about, uh, so we do. I should probably we do. just limit it. We do. Actually, let's, uh, yeah, let's move into the op-ed that came out this week. Uma Thurman is finally ready to talk about Harvey Weinstein and Quentin Tarantino. Um, of course, back in, was it October? She had said, she was, um, do, she was asked at the premiere of a show in Broadway that, about her thoughts, and she said she would wait and respond when she was less angry. And then on Thanksgiving, she had this Instagram post where she basically was saying stuff about, you know, wanting it to be a great, you know, like a great time to reflect on the things that we're thankful for, except for you, Harvey, and all of your um, enablers, essentially. And she said something like, you don't even deserve a bullet. Like, so it was just like, ooh, what's she going to say? Well, this week we finally got to, to know what she was going to say. So, Lauren, take it away. All right, so Uma Thurman uh, spoke to Maureen Dowd, who, you know, uh, th- that bothers me to begin with. But yeah. um, 
uh, but she spoke to Maureen Dowd at the New York Times, who who wrote a very intelligent article called uh, "This Is Why Uma Thurman Is Angry." So just in case we wanted to know, um, and uh, according to Thurman, yes, she was sexually assaulted by uh, Harvey Weinstein. I mean, the article the article opens with she has been raped, she has been sexually assaulted, she has been mangled in hot steel, she has been betrayed and gaslighted by those she trusted. And, and then it goes on, you know, to kind of rather coyly to talk about that, the, oh, this isn't a movie. It's just like, yeah, we know it isn't a movie. Yeah. Um, so, yes, um, Thurman, Thurman says that she was assaulted. It sounds like a few times by Weinstein, uh, despite the fact, you know, while she was working for him, while she was doing Pulp Fiction, while she was a young actress... And Weinstein, Weinstein has sort of acknowledged that something happened, but he one of one of the things that he said in a statement was that Mr. Weinstein acknowledges making a pass at Miss Thurman after misreading her signals. <laughs> yeah, because that's how sexual assault works, apparently. One of the um, so none, none of this is terribly surprising. I think a lot of people have said. That the, it's it was highly likely given or given her reactions given the fact that she's saying i'm not going to talk about this yet i need to process this i need to think about talking about it uh that she she was probably one of those women that had been victimized by weinstein that's hardly surprising she did a lot of films with with him and particularly through tarantino so the the more strange and disturbing thing i mean all of this is disturbing but the, the thing that is beginning to come out uh, that hadn't been out was that while she was filming Kill Bill with Tarantino uh, let me see yeah while she was um, filming Kill Bill with Tarantino she, she says Tarantino noticed after dinner that she was skittish around Weinstein which was a problem since they were all about to make Kill Bill she says she reminded Tarantino that she had already told him about the Savoy incident which was uh, where Weinstein attempted to, to rape her but he probably dismissed it like, oh, poor Harvey trying to get girls he can't have, whatever he told himself, who knows. But she reminded him again, and the penny dropped for him. He confronted Harvey. Supposedly, Weinstein said he was hurt and surprised by her accusations, and sort of gave her a half-assed apology. Later on, Tarantino... Um, during a filming of a scene in Kill Bill where she's driving a blue convertible, she was asked to do the driving herself. Despite the fact that the car did not appear to be working very well, Tarantino came into her trailers, uh, was furious because she'd cost them a lot of time, and uh, Thurman says that he said, I promise you the car is fine, it's a straight piece of road. She wound up getting into a very bad car crash on this car that was apparently not working very well and she blames Tarantino um, saying that you know she was she was badly injured she wound up with a neck with a neck brace uh, her knees damaged and a concussion as a result of this stunt where she should not have been basically she should not have been driving so her claim is that Tarantino put her in serious danger and this appears to be connected to the fallout that she has had with Weinstein. It's all very dark and murky and disturbing reading this article. I would urge people to go and read the full article because it's it's not always clear exactly what is happening and it's obvious that I think more stuff is going to come out from Thurman um, than just this. Yeah. 
I think so too. Um, well, and oh, go ahead. you know, I I hate and I I'm usually the one who's like the Tarantino defender here, and I was as I was telling everybody before we recorded, like he didn't actually assault anybody, right? And I was like, oh god, that's a horrible thing to ask because like <laughs> I'm mitigating those two concepts, and we saw it when uh, Elijah uh, Dishku had come out about her own experiences and that concept of the guy that her, uh, assaulted her was a stunt coordinator and that, you know, he, the stunts didn't work properly with her and she almost died. I'm not saying that Tarantino knowingly, like, put her in danger as a means of getting her to shut up, but it's that concept, too, that, you know, men are, because the, the industry is so skewed towards men, and men are the ones controlling sets in almost every instance. I mean, now there's this fear of like physical repercussion and questioning whether your life is gonna be in danger because the person that you are accusing or, or you know, their associates are the ones controlling that film. Yeah, it's, uh, yes, exactly. I, I absolutely agree with you. And one, one of the things that I think is very, really heartbreaking about this op-ed and the interview that is done with Thurman is that she essentially at one point particularly early on essentially blames herself for not coming forward earlier for not being the person that broke through the Weinstein barrier who actually you know broke all of this because she knew that it was happening because it had happened to her and it's there's almost this sense of shame that she's ashamed of not having done something Right. given the power that she has had, given the, her clout as an actress. Uh, and that's that's horrific that this woman who has been, you know, who's such a, a fixture of American cinema has been ashamed and angry with herself for so long at the fact that a bunch of men abused her. Right. I know. It's, it's heartbreaking that she had to go through that. It's also really interesting in the beginning of that article where she describes the lengths that these assistants would go to to convince women to go up to like meet Harvey privately, go to his room, whatever. And she talks about how, you know, usually was totally innocent because like Kristen and I, we've talked about this before too, where it's like these rooms are not, they're basically apartments. It's not like you're going to someone's room and Oh, there's the bed. And that's why it's, it's usually pretty easy to convince people to go in. But even when she knew something was wrong, even when she didn't want to go back, these assistants had all these convincing ways of, you know, oh, it'll be fine, it'll be fine. And, you know, it's it's really an interesting look, I think, and a terrifying look at the complicity of these people around him that were just, you know, that were so willing to help him do these terrible things to women, so... I just, my heart breaks for Uma Thurman, for still, you know, thinking about Salma Hayek, for everyone who's been through all of this. It's just, it's devastating. And I'm glad that it's finally out, but it's like, <clears throat> I mean, there needs to be a healing process, but at the same time, there needs to be a huge cleaning out. So back to Lauren's proposal. Let's just get rid of everybody. Burn it all down. <laughs> right. Start over again. We have, we have one more garbage person in I say that as a person because, yeah, it's not actually a man. Yeah. Why don't you go ahead <laughs> yeah. and talk about it, Kristen? 
Okay, so um, Rose McGowan is one of the more vocal um, Me Too uh, people, activists out there. Um, she was the one who accused Harvey Weinstein many, many years ago and kind of kicked this whole thing off. She has a book out right now called, or uh, it's coming out, called Brave that is exploring her experiences and she is on a book tour. Well, she went to a, I guess, a book reading of hers and a trans activist uh, asked her a question about comments that she had made, um, I guess, on RuPaul's podcast about um, trans women in the Me Too movement. And the woman wanted her to explain um, thoughts that she felt were excluding trans women from from the movement and it turned into a very heated argument between these two women um eventually uh rose mcgowan demanded that the trans woman be escorted from the area and she was removed by security and rose mcgowan proceeded to go on a rant talking about labels and how trans women are part of the movement but they're also not part of the movement and it was just a big ugly mess she has gone on to cancel um any further promotional appearances this has led to a lot of people saying that um, she's mentally ill. Um, and it's also brought up questions of the fact that Rose McGowan is kind of this example of white feminism, especially with the Me Too movement. The Me Too movement has been, there's been a lot of pushback from women of color feeling that it is not a movement for them. And that has a lot of valid criticisms. Um, Rose McGowan, yeah, it's, it's it's one it's going back to what Lauren was talking about in mitigating that Woody Allen thing. Like on one side, I feel for Rose McGowan, she's been victimized. She's probably you know a very stressed out person, and with good reason. But at the same time, she is making comments about trans women that have been going on for you know the last couple of months. That that trans women are not part of this movement. It goes back to women of color. Like, it, it's hard for me not to feel that sometimes this is just white feminism and, and that I'm both a part of it and I don't want to be a part of it. Um, and this is not helping. This, you know, her comments and her antipathy, there is a very clear answer that she could have given and she would have rather argued about it. And, and the fact that people were kind of coming to her defense really troubles me. Um, I don't know if anybody else uh, heard about this when it was happening, but yeah, it's it's very troubling to me. I had heard something in passing. The thing about Rose McGowan, and I don't want to to assume that I understand anybody's motives or, or anything like that, but <clears throat> the thing about everything that she has talked about and everything that's happened over the last few months, it feels like she only cares about her specific situation and the people that she directly knows and is involved in. And it's like... Mm -hmm. it's really frustrating because you have this voice rose you have a lot of people's attention right now you can bring so much you know to other people who have been through this whether you know them or not and so it's like i don't understand what she's doing and it's it, she says she just put out a tweet too that again is not helping it would be probably in her best interest to stop talking yeah she says quote i was verbally assaulted all caps by, for two full minutes, by an actor paid to verbally assault a woman who has been terrorized by your system and no one in that room did anything. Okay, let's break that down. A, whether this person was an, uh, a, you know, an actor, and I use that gender neutrally or not, it was a woman 
like you're you're she's acting like this was a man impersonating a woman it's a trans woman and and i i've read comments from people that knew this trans woman um paid to verbally assault a woman who has been terrorized by your system so it's that dichotomy that you know she's a real woman this person was not and she says no one in the room did anything there were numerous people who rallied her verbally in the crowd I don't know what she wanted. She wants somebody to go and physically beat the shit out of this person? I don't I don't understand what she wanted. She got support for it. People are supporting her far more than they are supporting this trans woman. So it goes back, I think, to exactly to what you're saying. She has a very clear definition of what she wants. And it's not good for the movement in general at all. Right. Yeah, we... It, it seems like we need to... Uh... <laughs> Rose McGowan is not a good spokesperson for this no. movement, uh, and and I do I do think that it's it's always dangerous to center any kind of a movement around a single person. Um, so I'm glad I'm I'm actually very glad that the Me Too movement has not centered itself around around Rose McGowan, even though she's absolutely a part of the conversation because she is one of the people that was assaulted, because she has been very vocal about this, and because the, you know the, she does deserve justice at that level. Uh, you know, yeah, no, there, you know, people have talked about intersectional feminism, that, that's what it has to be. It has to be intersectional. This has to be an intersectional movement. This has to have, this has to have space for all women. And trans women are women. Well, to me, you know, the Me Too movement shouldn't even just be about women or trans women yes. or whatever. It should be anybody who's been a victim. Uh, absolutely. You know, we've talked about Terry Crews. Mm -hmm. We've talked about Anthony Rapp. We've talked about the all of the men that have come forward, the men that have been assaulted as children, as adults. Uh, this, this is about, we've said it before, this is about power. And this is about power dynamics and is about the way that power is used, particularly in Hollywood, but just really now it's become across all industries. Yeah. Uh, and this that's what the dialogue has to be. So it's... Yeah, we're, we need to step away from Rose McGowan and, you know, and that's going to be hard to do because she has a lot of power and we're going to keep on hearing from her. Uh, but we have to keep on reminding people and reminding ourselves that she is not the Me Too movement. Right. Exactly. I'm really still very curious what her show is going to be. The I missed Citizen the um, show. They did like and an now hour I'm even less or like... something. I missed it. I just went on. <laughs> living my life oh, okay yeah i yeah i'm pretty sure it's gonna be something that would just really annoy and anger me so i don't know maybe i'll give it a watch and see what happens um so let's transition from garbage people into news with a story that's i don't know maybe a little bit of both possibly we don't really know it's been 38 years um after all these years Robert Wagner was officially named a person of interest in Natalie Wood's death. He's really the only person of interest, but, you know, <laughs> I guess we made it official. Yeah. Kristen, why don't you talk a little bit more about this? Okay. Um, because I've, I'm officially, I think my brand is like feminism, creepy movies, and all things Natalie Wood. Um Exactly. <laughs> so, in case you don't know, um, Natalie Wood died uh, 38 years ago um, on, I'm actually going to pull it up, um, in 1981, uh, in November 29th, she drowned 
the official the official cause of death is drowning. She fell um, out of a she was on her boat called the Splendor, was trying to leave uh, the boat and got into a rubber dinghy and based on how you want to interpret it, she slipped and the heavy down jacket that she was wearing caused her to sink. Natalie Wood did not like to swim in water she could not see the bottom of. Um, and so it's led to a lot of conspiracy theories over the years about why she would have tried to get into this boat, knowing she didn't like water, knowing she wasn't a very good swimmer. Um, we've always had speculation, and there's only three people, well, four if you count Natalie, three that know what happened. Dennis Davern, who was the, the captain of the boat at the time, Robert Wagner, who was her husband, and Christopher Walken, who was a guest on the boat, um, because he and Natalie Wood had been filming a movie together, there were also allegations that they had been having an affair. So, Robert Wagner's always kind of been the de facto person. Uh, I think back in 2012, they reopened, the LAPD reopened the case based on what they claimed was new information. Most of us assumed it was an autopsy report that had been revised that noted um, wounds on her body that were not consistent with drowning that many people assumed were consistent with a beating. Um, and now we're talking about Robert Wagner as a person of interest. Robert Wagner stopped talking to the cops after 2012 when they reopened the case. Um, and he has been very shifty about not wanting to um, talk about, about that night, logically so, but also illogically so. Um, supposedly Christopher Walken was re-interviewed when they did uh, the reopening in 2012, and Dennis Davern was as well. Um, this is just making it official. I, I guess it's going to coincide with um, a new special that's going to air by the time this will uh, go up, it'll already have aired, that is supposed to look at new evidence and new witnesses. Now, unless you have somebody on Catalina Island who saw what was happening from the island, I don't understand... Robert Wagner's always been a person of interest. Yes, you're just making, putting a way, it's really, you're changing your Facebook status. Like, that's really all it is to <laughs> me. Um, I don't think, I, I, and I told my mom, and I will tell her, tell this publicly, I bet my life savings, we will never charge him with murder. No, we never. We no. won't. Um, and honestly, do I think that he, with malice aforethought, killed her and threw her off that boat? No, I don't. Um, and I've never thought that. I do believe that they were very drunk together, that there was an argument that he hit her, um, that they might have, the, worst case scenario, they went out onto that dock, she fell, and he left her there. Um, because he assumed that she was, was gonna be fine. That the boat was, that the dinghy was there, she was gonna be fine. Um, that's the bare minimum, I, I think. I definitely think he knows, he probably knew she was out in that water, um, and he did nothing because the assumption for him, drunkenly, was that she could swim well enough to get herself out. Um, that's not murder. That's manslaughter. That's negligence. And at 38 years, you don't have physical evidence. The boat's been back with Robert Wagner. Any forensics you're going to get are gone. So oh yeah, it just makes me sad. Like, I, I actually hate when they bring this up because it just makes me think of, like, the horrible final moments that she probably had. And I don't want to, because I love Natalie Wood. She's one of my favorite actresses. And I don't like Robert Wagner as a person. He treated her horribly. And, you know, he probably was associated in some way with knowing what happened in her final moments. But we're never going to get anything to, to fix it at this point. Right. It's all speculation. That's all we can ever have. 
I mean, yeah. how if, if there's a witness, where have they been for the last 38 years? And how much can we really trust them? Right. I mean, point? everybody, you know, I mean, and, and that's, that's always going to be the problem with the case. There are holes in everybody's story. Dennis Davern was a hanger on. He admitted that he was a little high and drunk. Um, you know, so he's already untrustworthy. Robert Wagner was also drunk that night. Christopher Walken was drunk that night. They were probably high on something that night. I mean, it was the 80s. Mm-hmm. You don't know what they were doing. So, I mean, nobody <laughs> is reliable. And, exactly. and short of getting a, a open and shut case with forensic evidence or an eyewitness, you're not get, This will always go down as, well, Robert Wagner might have had something to do with it, but we'll never know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. And it is too bad. And it's really sad Um, that someone so wonderful because I love Natalie Wood too and it's so sad the way that her life ended and I hope that her family is able to come to some sort of terms with it well so the the uh, what I've heard is I mean her his Robert Wagner is very close they they him and Natalie Wood share a daughter together he's very close with uh the daughter that Natalie Wood had with um Richard Griggs and Wagner and I mean at this point I think nothing's gonna bring her back so i'm pretty sure they've rectified with it as best they can yeah mm-hmm. yeah i hope so let's talk about something that made me happy this week octavia spencer is gonna be oh. in a horror movie from blumhouse productions and i'm so excited about this because i love it when someone who has typically been in a lot of similar types of roles does something different and I'm super excited so basically Tate Taylor who directed her to her first Oscar win in The Help is doing this horror slash physical thriller or psychological thriller um, called Ma and Kristen you're gonna love this part Luke Evans is also in it (laughs) (laughs) and Juliette Lewis and so we don't know uh, the details of the story, but um, Tate Taylor was talking about why he decided to cast Octavia Spencer in the role, and he said, It's dark material, but it's also really fun. Octavia is so damn likable that we usually see her in certain roles, but she's such a good actress, and this is such a complex character that if I do my job right, people in the audience are going to want to push pause and say, can we please take you out for coffee so you don't do what you're about to do? (laughs) And I'm like, oh my gosh, sign me up. I'm so excited. And then he also says, I wouldn't call her a villain. It's definitely the most complex character she's ever played, if I may be so bold as to say that. So I am very excited about this. I don't even care what it's about. It's Octavia Spencer in a horror film. So, and it sounds like she's the one to be afraid of. So I am down. What do you guys think? I mean, I'm not big on, on Tate Taylor in general. Um, I mean, The Help has some understandable pushback to it, um, and I don't really think he's made anything that I've outright loved. But I'm all for people trying new things, and and I think that Octavia Spencer, even when a movie is bad, she is really good, mm-hmm. and I'm excited. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, I'm, I'm down for Octavia Spencer in anything, so I, I will be perfectly happy to watch this. Same. I'm so excited that, because, I mean... She's now a three-time Oscar nominee. She has won once, and all three of her nominations have come for period films, and all more specifically set in the 60s. And 
uh, I'm excited to see her branching out. I mean, she has done other things, but that's just what she's been the most recognized for. She also is going to be doing a um, holiday comedy with Jessica Chastain. So those, those two are reuniting. So that'll be fun. So I'm just, I'm really excited to see her um, getting bigger, like different types of parts. So it'll be really fun to see. Um, where this goes. This film is going to be shooting in Mississippi, and apparently they're all going to be living at Tate Taylor's house while they're there, so <laughs> that'll be interesting. So, But anyway, I'm excited. So, let's see. Um, more casting news, and circling back briefly to Tarantino. Uh, Lauren, you have some thoughts. I have some thoughts about uh, the I not a Manson go, film. <laughs> I about the totally not about a Manson the Manson family at all. Obviously, <laughs> you know that's the tagline. Right, not about Manson. <laughs> uh, yeah. So Tarantino's uh, somehow we're talking about Tarantino a lot. Um, Tarantino's new definitely not a Manson movie is uh, has been searching around for casting. Apparently, they are casting someone to play Roman Polanski. Uh, who, as we know, was the husband of Sharon Tate and the father of, of the <laughs> Sharon Tate's child, who was, both of whom were murdered um, by the Manson family. One of the issues that sort of cropped up about this, first of all, people were talking about this as those, like, how dare you do this during Me Too? And that, that was one of those where you're like, wait a minute, this, I mean, if they're going to make a movie about the Manson family, then there's a good chance that Polanski is going to be featured in it because his wife was murdered. It doesn't have anything to do with the, the later sexual assault. Um, but the other thing is that this is being talked about as a key role. And Tarantino is casting around for a Polish actor rather than a well-known Hollywood star to play the part. Now, of course, this again raises the question of, you're saying that this isn't a movie about the Manson murders, but... Roman Polanski is going to, the husband of one of the people killed, is going to be playing a, a key part, is, is a key character in this movie. I've said it before, I will say it again, this movie needs to not exist. Is there any way that someone can pull funding for it? Can we just stop <laughs> it dead? Because I, I am so horrified by everything that I keep on hearing about this. And I truly do not believe that this is not a movie about the Manson murders, yeah. given that everything we hear is about the Manson murders. Right. Well, and my, my issue is, too, is that wasn't Roman Polanski not around that week? He was yeah, out he of was the country London. filming, yeah. Yeah, so... He was in London. Unless... And, and this goes to the rumors I've heard that this is going to be some type of revisionist take, not unlike the end of Inglorious Bastards. Um, so, so what? Sharon Tate is going to live. What's going to happen? Exactly. <laughs> like I don't really understand what's what's going to go on there. Um, and yeah, I don't understand why you would want to open yourself up to criticisms like this where people are going to be like why the fuck are you putting roman polanski in this movie um i mean yeah if you want to talk about the end and have him show up at the end as like this sad figure whose wife and child were viciously murdered that's that's fine but to make him a central player i have a theory 
Yes. It could be bunnies. Um, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> well, kudos if anybody gets that Buffy the Vampire um, well, okay, so I did read an article that talks a little bit about the plot of the movie. Hold on one second. Hold on one second, guys. I gotta open my door and let the Roomba out, or he's gonna be circling my room. <laughs> one sec. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not cutting that. <laughs> Please don't. I am Please totally don't leaving that, that in. That's awesome. <laughs> Back theory welcome back (laughs) okay um so i all right i'm trying to find the article but okay so i was reading a little bit about what the plot the basic plot of the film is and leonardo dicaprio's character is supposed to be this actor who i think it's like he's kind of on the back end of his career he's kind of downward spiraling And he's trying to get into the spaghetti westerns that are starting to really pop up and and be popular in Italy. So he's Clint Eastwood. Got it. Yeah. And so I'm wondering if the reason Polanski's involved is because of working with this Leonardo DiCaprio character, uh, this actor. So I'm wondering if it's like, because I've also heard this is um, sort of supposed to be something like a... Pulp Fiction type style, where it's a lot of different people that are sort of loosely connected to each other. Some of them are not connected at all. Um, and so if that's the case, I think my suspicion would be that Polanski's in it as his own person. And then the fact that that his wife is murdered back at home is like just a separate part of it in a weird way. That's, that's what I mean- I'm... I, I don't know. I, I still don't like it. I'm still not... I don't trust Tarantino, but I think yeah. that's probably the route they're going. I mean, you know, Polanski and Tate were, were a major... They they were a major force yeah. in uh, sort of 1960s Hollywood. They Both of them. Uh, and their, their marriage was, was a big deal. Yeah. Uh, so, and it was one of the reasons why she was targeted. But it's... Yeah, I mean, we, we've talked about all of this, so I won't rehash it, but... I, I just really I'm not I'm not on board with this and I do think that there's this sense that the um, the deaths of these people is are becoming more important than their lives and I really wish that Tarantino would stay away from it. Yeah, I agree. I I'm gonna be the asshole that says I'm still cautiously optimistic this won't be offensive. <laughs> <laughs> That is real optimism. That man. sounds like it's spoken by someone who's never seen a Tarantino movie. <laughs> he uh. likes to be offensive. That's what his whole goal in life is. Okay, well then I, I buy into the offensive. I don't know, okay? I'm just, I'm just going to keep <laughs> saying that I'm okay with this. I'm sorry. Well, you know what? You can go ahead and have hope. I'm probably still going to see it, but, you know, I am very... I'm, I'm of the assumption that it's going to be problematic. But, you know what? I'm willing to be surprised. Uh, Okay, so one other bit of news this week that uh, people have varying degrees of emotion on. And that is, so, okay, we've talked a little bit about the Fantastic Beasts sequel, which is currently in production. J.K. Rowling is actually writing the script for this series. 
David Ayers is the director. They have been working together since at least the, I think since the fifth film. I can't remember. But anyway, uh, the fifth Harry Potter film. Um, is it? But anyway. I, I thought it was David Yates. Oh, David Yates. Sorry. Yes, like David, David Yates. David Ayer, the guy who David Yates. Write? I, yeah, you're right. Someone wrote, yeah. I'm so, that's my bad. Sorry. Okay. My okay. Bad. David Yates. Yeah, I was thinking. That didn't sound right, but okay. Um, yeah, David Yates started directing Harry Potter with the fifth film, which is The Order of the Phoenix, and then he did six, seven, eight. He did the first Fantastic Beasts, and he's doing, I believe he's on tap to do all five of the films in this series. Um, so, okay, here's, here's a little backstory. J.K. Rowling wrote the Harry Potter books over the course of about 20 years. The first one was published in 97. The last one was published in 2007. But she actually started writing them, like, way before that. And the after the series was finished, she has never stopped talking about it. Like, you know, fans like myself are obsessed with these characters. We love these characters. And so from time to time, she'll reveal just a little bit of, of information that she had come up with. She's got boxes and boxes and boxes of notes and, and just like drawings and all kinds of things from developing these characters. I mean, there are so many people in this series of seven books. And one of the little things that she revealed, not so little, but one of the things that she revealed after the seventh book had come out was that Albus Dumbledore, who is the, um, he's the headmaster of the school that Harry Potter goes to. He's this very, very powerful wizard. The only person that the evil bad guy was ever afraid of. She revealed that he was gay. And a lot of people were like, okay, what does that have to do with anything? Because there's never any reference to anything sexual in those in the books at all or anything like that. So a lot of people were like, hey, that's cool. That's good information. And other people were like, yeah, who cares? It doesn't have anything to do with anything. Well, now that this series is coming forward, Fantastic Beasts, it's, um, it, this takes place 70 years before Harry Potter. And Albus Dumbledore was a young man. And he is actually going to be a character in the second book. He will be played by Jude Law. And, or I'm sorry, in the second movie. He'll be played by Jude Law. And uh, this gets into... This is setting up a big showdown that he famously had had with this bad guy back in the day. And so now, Rowling and Yates are saying, like the fact that Dumbledore is gay isn't going to be any part of this movie. And so people have some very mixed feelings about that. Some people are like, well, it shouldn't. It didn't matter before. Why does it matter now? And other people are like, wait a second, you have an opportunity here. Why are you dismissing it? Because one of the whole points was that Dumbledore supposedly had had a relationship with this guy who ends up being this big bad guy that he's uh, fighting against, which is uh, played by Johnny Depp. So... I don't know. What do you guys think? I know you're not huge fans of the series, but... The problem that I have is, much like a lot of the decisions that J.K. Rowling's making of late, she made a big deal out of it, him being gay. Mm-hmm. And now that fans are, like, actually expecting something to come of that, she's taken to blocking people. Yeah. Um, And it goes right back to what we were saying about when she you know, the criticisms about Johnny Depp. And the 
I mean, that's a different can of worms, but she's the one who made this decision for the character. And now she doesn't want to give an opportunity for that character to give us something. Especially something that would possibly make the franchise interesting. Yeah, um, I am very much uh, mixed on this. Like I said, I'm a huge fan I, I think it wouldn't be a big deal if she hadn't made it a big deal. Yes, exactly. That's the yeah. thing. Yeah. I think that's what people are pissed about, is that she's the one that made this a big deal, and now that she's got to kind of put her money where her mouth is, she doesn't want to. Yeah. Yeah, she she already, she already imposed this meta-interpretation on this character that, as you say, doesn't really exist uh, in the books themselves. And so it's like, okay, well, but if you're going to impose that, you're going to say this is this is a fact of the character's life, which is it's her right as an author, and and it does provide for interesting representation to be like, oh, this major figure who is you know admired in the Harry Potter franchise is is also homosexual. It's like that's that's great, that's good. But then to be like, oh, but we're not actually ever going to talk about it or reference it or deal with it, right? I mean, what? <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. I do. So. I- yeah, I, I I wish that she had just not said anything. Uh, I mean, it's fine for her to say, okay, this is this fact about my character, that Dumbledore was gay. That's fine. I don't have a problem with that. But sh- they sh- why did they even talk about the fact that it's not going to be addressed in this film? That's just opening themselves up to a lot of criticism and valid criticism, I think. So. Okay, let's move on to other topics. Um... Alright, so we had some new trailers this week. We had the new trailer for Mute, and some people are saying that it's just another Blade Runner 2049. I am And when going... some pe- people say that, I mean me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, um, okay. Let me talk about that. Okay, so I have been excited for this movie since last year, because it's directed by Duncan Jones, otherwise known as David Bowie Jr. That's um, <laughs> what I call him. Um, and I'm a big fan of source code. Um, I, Moon's good, but it's not a big thing, um, for me. But when he said he was going to make this, this big sci-fi movie, um, with Alexander Skarsgård, I was like, sweet, okay. And then it didn't come out, and then I just kind of waited, and then they said Justin Theroux was going to be in it, and I was like, holy shit, give me this movie now, and then it (laughs) never came out. Well, now there's a trailer, because it's going to go on to Netflix, I think, in March. Um, but I watched the trailer, and I definitely like the noir type of thing, because you have Alexander Skarsgård's character, who's a mute, who's trying to find his girlfriend, and, of course, there's, like, a bunch of weirdos that populate the planet, Paul Red's got a mustache, Justin throws in a dad sweater and a horrible wig, but I'm, like, so for it. Um, <laughs> but as I was watching it, I was just thinking... Like, wow, this movie really should have come out before Blade Runner did. Because the look just seems so similar. And I mean, that's part of, I think, the sad thing about making a futuristic set film in this day and age. Is that you're all just, start- everybody's just starting to cannibalize each other. But then you also look at the plot line. You know, guy trying to deal with a girlfriend that probably has secrets and... The sci-fi genre is really not hospitable to women, as we've seen, and I'm just now very concerned that this is going to be another Blade Runner 2049. Especially since Duncan Jones' previous films, you ain't watching them for the women. I mean, like, 
Does anybody remember Michelle Monaghan's character in Source Code? There were no women in Moon. <laughs> so, little afraid. But, I'm, I mean, I'm still going to watch it, because I'm me. Well, and you will be able to watch it on Netflix on February 23rd. <laughs> oh, so yay! I don't even have to wait till March. Woohoo! <laughs> there you go. Lauren, any thoughts? Uh, not particularly. I mean, I hadn't really heard about this film until the trailer came out. Um, it looks fine. It does look aesthetically almost exactly the same as Blade Runner 2049. At the same time, as you're pointing out, most a lot of cyberpunk looks like Blade Runner. It's true. So, mm-hmm. you know, to say that it, it looks like it, that's that doesn't that doesn't necessarily mean that it's going to be just a carbon copy or that it's just going to be another sort of Netflix version of Blade Runner 2049, but I mean, I I'm not I liked Moon. Uh I'm not particularly madly in love with Duncan Jones's work. So, we'll just have to wait and see. I I'll probably watch it yeah. when it comes out on Netflix. <laughs> there you go. Just a couple weeks. Uh, we also had a trailer this week for the movie Unsane, which is directed by Steven Zoderberg, who has just decided to be back, apparently. So, um, this is about a young woman, okay, a young woman is involuntarily committed to a mental institution where she is confronted by her greatest fear, but is it real or a product of her delusion? This stars Claire Foy, Juno Temple, Amy Irving, um... Some other people and this will be out march 23rd did you guys watch the trailer for unsung i saw this uh, Unsane, uh, bef- sorry i saw this before winchester yesterday oh. and i had not i i know karen was it you that who had this on their most anticipated it was not me it might have been kimberly it i don't was know probably Somebody, kim yeah um either way um, I was not really into this, um, but I watched it beforehand. I watched the trailer, and I'm very intrigued. Um, it looks like it's shot all on an iPhone, so it's probably going to give me a headache, and I'm really not excited to see this in a theater. But um, I'm interested in the story, because Claire Foy is supposedly being stalked by some creepy guy, um, and then she ends up being signing some forms that commit her to a mental institution. I just feel like it's going to give me a panic attack. <laughs> it's just it's just Claire Foy being like, I'm not crazy. I'm completely rational. Like, why am I in here? I'm just, that's like one of my greatest fears. <laughs> so I'm just sitting there like, oh God, oh God, I, I don't know if I can handle this. Um, which is always a mark of a good movie. So I'm, I'm in, I'm in. Yeah, I think it it looks very intriguing. I really am a fan of Soderbergh's films. I was one of the few people who liked Logan Lucky last year and was really glad oh, to see him God, back I on the big like screen. I thought it was a lot of fun. Um, this one, some bits of it remind me, like, emotionally, I think, of Shutter Island with Leonardo yeah. DiCaprio. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I'm very, I'm intrigued. I will see it. I don't know if it's going to be any good or not, but I'm like, yeah, let's do it. Why not? I'm, I'm not excited to see this in the theater. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think it's going to be pretty crazy. So, Lauren, any thoughts? Uh, no, I'm, I'm pretty much, I'm willing to see it. Soderbergh always makes interesting films, even when he misses, his films are still interesting. So, and I, I love Claire Foy. Yeah. So, I, I would definitely, I'll be willing to go just for her. Yeah, definitely. Uh, so... Yeah, I, I'm down for it. Again, it's you never know how these things are going to work, and so Soderbergh has been sort of pushing the envelope in terms of um, 
different ways of filming and different modes of distribution and things like that. And so I would be interested to see how this whole all shot on an iPhone mm-hmm. uh, is actually going to perform. It could, cause it could be really interesting. It could be terrible. Right. Uh, but it will definitely be unique. Sounds good. I'm excited. All right, so we are recording this on Saturday, but by the time you hear it, there will be a trailer that drops during the Super Bowl tomorrow that I am super excited for. So I'm going to go ahead and give you a completely accurate reaction right now before I ever see the trailer for Mission Impossible Fallout, which comes out this summer. Oh my gosh, I'm so excited for this movie. This trailer looks amazing. I'm Dead serious, I'm going to say that. This trailer looks amazing, Tom looks great, and I can't wait. So, there you go. (laughs) Oh, God. That's the only reason you're watching the Super Bowl, Karen. No, Budweiser's going to have some amazing commercials, too. Come on. (laughs) Um, But, no, I actually really am excited for Mission Impossible. I really like this series. Even the ones that are not as strong entries, which are... Mission Impossible 2, and I actually didn't love Rogue Nation as Uh. much as a lot of people did, but I'm I'm very intrigued by this one because this is actually the first Mission Impossible film that is a direct sequel to a previous film. So, it's all been franchise entries, but this one is actually related directly to the last one. So, this is still fighting the same bad guy, Rebecca Ferguson was introduced as this, like, rival spy in the last film. She's coming back for this one. Um, it's the same director. It's the first time that someone has directed more than one of the of the MI movies. So I'm really curious. I'm really excited. I'm going to love it even if it's bad. Henry Cavill's mustache is actually in this movie. This is why his face looks weird in Justice League. Um, or one of the reasons why his face looks weird. Just kidding. Just kidding. He's a very attractive man, whatever. But, um, yeah, no, I'm excited. And Angela Bassett's going to be in this. Michelle Monaghan is coming back, his supposedly dead wife. (laughs) I'm like, I'm down. So bring it on. I can't wait for the trailer. So, all right. Let's see. So we have a few questions, and I'm excited for these. Um... So this one is inspired by Kristen's Adrian Line rewatch. Which director can you say you've watched every film in their canon? Lauren. Uh, Alfred Hitchcock. Yeah, everyone. Alfred Hitchcock. Well, all of the ones that are available. There are a few that are um, missing. Okay. Uh, so, so yeah, I, it's impossible to actually have seen all of Hitchcock's films because you can't because a lot of his films are a lot of his early films are missing. Yeah, but yeah, every single one of his uh, films, his British films, his silent films, his American releases. Uh, God, some of them are terrible. <laughs> um, particularly his very very early films, like Hitchcock did a bunch of silence that some of which are just wrote boring melodramas and you you sit there going like this was made by alfred hitchcock (laughs) Uh, but hey that's how he learned so yeah yeah he started off as a very experimental director so it's interesting what are some of your favorites oh god (laughs) uh i mean i always say that my favorite is psycho just because it's it's a perfect film uh it is his masterpiece 
Um, but I also I, I honestly love some of his early British films. Uh, the Lady Vanishes, Young and Innocent, uh, the the original The Man Who Knew Too Much, um, Thirty Nine Steps. I'm actually less hot on. But his British work is very quirky and weird, and uh, has a uh, blackmail is is amazing. You know, if we're talking we're talking about Me Too and the representation of sexual assaults in cinema, that is a very important film uh, in in terms of that. Um, I'm actually less impressed by his American by his later American output. Like I'm not a big fan of Rear Window or Vertigo. Thank or, you. Um, <laughs> I love Rear Window. <laughs> I mean, Rear Window is a good film. I, it's just not one of those films that I'm like, yes, I have to watch Rear Window. This is the best Hitchcock movie. I have personal like, no, no. I have personal <laughs> issues with Rear Window. My issue is is that this dude's laid up with a broken leg and sends these poor women out to go do his bidding, and not once does he ever say thank you. If I pulled that shit, I would get yelled at. <laughs> oh, I mean, Jimmy Stewart is a dick in that movie. That's part of the point. Uh, uh, absolutely. Like, he is. He is. Uh, Grace Kelly and, um, uh, now I'm like, I think it's yelled. Barbara Bel Geddes. No, that's Barbara Bel I think it is. Dude, if I'm right... <laughs> He's in Vertigo. Oh, okay. I get them confused. They're the same movie to me. Yeah, no, she's in Vertigo. Um, That's Grace Kelly, and the woman who plays his maid is... uh, Crap. I can't remember her name. Thelma Ritter. Oh, oh, yeah! I'm terrible. (laughs) Uh, I mean, they're both both great, but it's... Yeah, no, I'm, I'm not as big of a fan of Rear Window as a lot of people are. I like when they... I hate when people are like, I'm going to remake a Hitchcock film, but every once in a while they do it right. Like when they turn it into a comedy and it's called The Burbs. (laughs) (laughs) Oh my gosh, I love The Burbs so much. That's such a great uh, adaptation of Rear Window, I think. so. Uh, Kristen, how about you? Which Uh, director have you watched every film in their canon? Other than Adrian Lyne? Um... Adrian Lyne only has nine movies, so that actually helps. <laughs> um, but yeah, I, I officially watched Nine and a Half Weeks was the last Adrian Lyne movie that I had to see. So uh, I've I've watched all of his movies, and I've watched all of Sofia Coppola's movies. Again, it helps that these people don't have big filmographies. So yeah, mine doesn't have a big filmography either. I really think the only director who has more than five films, I've seen every film in his filmography, is Christopher Nolan. Uh, I've probably seen every Nolan film, too. Okay, let me let me just clarify. I've seen every feature film. I have yes, not seen yeah, his short Yeah, we're, we're only talking feature films here. Okay, good. So. Yeah, because I haven't seen his short films, but... Because, like, Adrian Lyne is credited with, like, music videos. I'm like, I didn't yeah. watch those. Feature <laughs> films. Yeah. But, um, but yeah, I've seen everything. I've seen Following. I've seen... Oh, I love Memento. I, Memento's great. Oh, it's so I good. Memento. Really? Oh, I my gosh. It. I love it. See, I still really love Inception. Oh, me too. I love every one of his movies except Following. Um, Following wasn't good. I did not like Insomnia. I liked it. Oh, I was and, really um, intrigued by it. I, I was just cold on Dunkirk. And Interstellar, I did not care for. See, I love them all. I love yeah. all of them. If we're talking Sofia Coppola movies, I love everyone, okay? <laughs> I mean, I like some less than others, but I generally like all of them. 
Yeah. Adrian Lyon, I can tell you that I... There's, like, crap, 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 crap I can watch, crap I love, movie I love, somewhat less crap I love. Like, it, it only <laughs> helps that, like, yeah, I, I'm well aware of his limitations, and yet I indulge in them, so... There you go. Yeah. It's like Paul Verhoeven, only classier. Yeah. <laughs> I've also seen almost every film by M. Night Shyamalan. Oh, and, Pro- I yeah, probably those have, are... too. Those are uh, varying degrees of quality. I am one that I actually appreciate and enjoy watching The Happening because I, from the beginning, always looked at it as like this comedic, like not to be taken seriously. And when you watch it that way, it's a lot more fun. Like (laughs) when people are like, it's supposed to be this scary horror movie. I'm like, no, I don't think it is. So, I mean, he casts. He cast Mark Wahlberg as a science teacher. Come on. He's not being serious. So, yeah. I enjoy it. But anyway. Um, <clears throat> let's see. So we had a couple of listener questions, too, which we always love. You can always send those our way. Uh, the first one comes from Electron 3000. What are some of the best female performances you've seen? Can be classic era or contemporary? Oh, God. Um... I'm going to let somebody else go first while I contemplate this. Oh, man. Uh, Lauren, you have any that come to mind right away? I mean, that's so hard. I was thinking about this as, as we were chatting. <laughs> it's like, yeah. I mean, there are so many, and I'll feel bad because I missed out something. Um, for whatever reason, and maybe it's just because I, I recently watched this film, uh, Deborah Carr's performance in The Innocence mm. is amazing. Uh, if if no one has seen The Innocence, it's a adaptation of uh, Henry James's The Turn of the Screw. And she, you know, Carr, Carr throughout her entire career had this combination of uh, <laughs> had this combination of repressed sexuality and vulnerability that is really fascinating to watch. But what she uses it for in The Innocence is it's this question of she's a she plays a governess who's um, to wards uh, may or may not be haunted by the very sexually rapacious ghosts of these two former servants. Uh, And it's really much more about the psychology of uh, the governess than it is about the psychology of the children because it's about why she begins to suspect this and you know she begins thinking that she's seen the ghosts uh, and she begins interrogating the children and the performance there is amazing because on the one end you feel very sympathetic towards her on the other hand there's this constant question of is she crazy is she actually like indulging her her own imagination and her own repression in and foisting it off upon these basically innocent children and it's a fascinating performance i love her in it uh it's probably her greatest performance the other one that i thought of was Roz russell in his girl friday for obvious reasons. <laughs> nice. Kristen, did you think of any? Um, yeah, I got I got a couple. Um, I don't necessarily know if these are the best, but I, these are ones that I know stick with me and, and resonate. Um, I love well, that's Veronica- why I like the way the question is worded. It's what are some of the best? So. Yeah. Um, I love Veronica Lake in I Married a Witch. It's not a role that she would have ever won an award for, but it showed just her excellent comedic timing and the fact that she could make it with Frederick March who she says sexually harassed her every day and she like 
is actually beating in some of their scenes um, is hilarious. <laughs> um, and I give her so much credit for, for being amazing. Um, I love, love, love Leslie Ann Warren and Victor Victoria. Oh, I, yeah. I think she's oh, so yeah. funny. Um, playing a character that could have been, I mean, she's meant to be grating, but you just love her. Um, I mean, Martha Vickers in, in The Big Sleep is really good. I love, like, really memorable side performances. Um, but the one I always go back to, and my mother doesn't, un she understands it, but she doesn't agree with it necessarily, is um, Judy Garland in A Star is Born from 1954. Um, she should have won the Oscar for that. I don't care about Grace Kelly ugling it up for the country girl. Like, no, that was Judy's. Um, because... I mean, Judy Garland gives great performances, but she'd never really been given a meaty role like that. And when you watch, um, I mean, if you can sit through all three hours of A Star is Born, which I, it's not difficult, it's a fantastic movie, uh, but there's a scene at the end um, where she's talking about how she she loves James Mason's character, who's her husband. Um, she goes on this, this monologue about how he um, is an alcoholic and she loves him but she also hates that he can do this to her. And as you're watching it, you're remembering the fact that Judy Garland's talking about herself and her own demons. And and it's just, it's such a heartbreaking moment in a movie that is filled with heartbreaking moments. And God damn it, she should have won that Oscar. Can we just take the Oscar from Grace and just like chisel some, I'm sorry, okay? Just give Judy the Oscar, she deserved it. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, she was great. Um, let's see, gosh, for me, I instantly started thinking of some comedic performances. Um, I love, I love when women do comedy and do it well. Um, some, one of the ones that actually, the, the first movie that came to my mind and the first role that came to my mind when I read this question was actually Whoopi Goldberg in Ghost. I it was love her in that. Yeah, she what, did win the Oscar. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I love her in that movie so much, um, and I just, I really, I mean, drama is great, and and I, you know, there's definitely been some performances that have moved me to tears, many performances that have moved me to tears, but I love it when I can just laugh too, you know, and and I think there are just that's that's one that I just come back to because it also it has heart too. It's not just straight up like just hilarious the whole time like there's this there's this very moving side to it as well um and so I you know there oh, there's so many great performances I think about um Shirley MacLaine in terms terms of endearment I think of um oh man like just ah my my brain is there's just too many there's so many and it's also like I was trying to separate great performances from great characters because I think sometimes there are really great characters um that are cool but like the movie doesn't really lend itself to a to a performance that's really that amazing or anything I don't know and now I'm just talking but ah uh, there are some amazing women that I just I could just watch them over and over again. Um, Julia Roberts in Aaron Brockovich. I love that movie. I love her in it. So, um, let's see. All right, we have one other question from Ryan McDermott. <laughs> this one I think is just for you, Lauren. 
It was mentioned last episode that the snowman was a surrealist masterpiece. What would you consider some other surrealist masterpieces on the same wavelength? <laughs> I, uh, I really question, hope. Ryan. Thank you. I really hope that Ryan knows that I am kidding. Uh, that I do not actually think that the snowman is a surrealist masterpiece in a serious sense. What? <laughs> uh, <laughs> that is I brand really new information. <laughs> I truly hope that. I mean, uh, I I am perfectly willing to rank snowman in there with um, some of the best bad movies that I have seen, and that does include films like Deathbed, The Bed That Eats. <laughs> And uh, one of my personal favorites that my roommate showed to me, Hell Comes to Frogtown. Oh, God, uh, I know of that starring, movie. Starring Rowdy Roddy Piper as oh, the only fertile man left on the planet that is populated by, like, frog creatures. Uh, so I think the, the snowman sort of ranks, ranks kind of in there. I'm trying to think of any other contemporary, like, more contemporary films that... Uh, have that degree of like charming ineptitude uh, other than The Room which is just I I think it's his own animal yeah Uh, so yeah I'll I'll just I'll leave leave it at those two because I honestly cannot think of something else and Ryan please I hope that you know that I actually do know what surrealism is (laughs) and and I know that the snowman is not actually surrealism I'm sure that he does because he says on the same wavelength so yeah, I think I think we just mean something that's like so terrible that you're just like, it's a train wreck, but I cannot look away. Um, that's why I love it. <laughs> exactly. I like. I can tell you. I mean, like, it's not on par with something like Eraserhead, which I would say is a surrealist masterpiece. Um, yes, it is. <laughs> it's really weird. Um, I was gonna say The Room, but if we're talking just like, biz- I mean, because The Snowman has good actors trying very hard to make lemons out of like oranges (laughs) they're trying to make lemonade out of an orange and it just doesn't work um so i mean by that same same logic i mean i put i put this up there with like showgirls where showgirls is a movie that you know has directing and it has a script (laughs) and it has thought in it but you're not really understanding how that goes together but you were so entertained that you were just like huh i will say a movie that probably reminded me the most of a movie that i will say is very similar to the snowman in it's like what the fuck am i watching this is a movie that is actually i got told has a cult following in italy which makes a lot of sense because <laughs> Italians are bizarre. Um, but it's a movie that I watched last year, and I probably should have put it on my worst movies of the year last year, but I forgot that I had watched it. Um, it's a Jeremy Irons movie, actually. It's called Correspondence, and it is the worst fucking movie I've ever seen in my life. Um, and at a certain point, you're watching it, and it's just leaving you questions. Much like the snowman left you with questions. <laughs> if you ever wondered, you know, things about the snowman, and you're like, but but why watch correspondence because it's gonna leave you questions like why has nobody brought up the fact that olga kurlenko and jeremy irons are a couple and there's at least 30 years on a good day between the two of them no one brings it up 
why is Olga Kirilenko a student by day of, like, astronomy or something, and also stunt woman by night? Like, why is Jeremy Irons slowly disappearing from the narrative? Not because his character dies in the first five minutes, but because he just decided he was going to stop filming, and so they just play his voice to an em- to the back of an- a chair that is obviously empty. <laughs> Things like that that make no sense. Why does this movie have the gall to be two and a half hours of watching Olga Kurlenko watch an iPhone screen? These are questions. Yeah. Okay. So if you have ever been confused while watching The Snowman and you stay up at night wondering why these answers were probably never even thought of, Watch Correspondence, you can get it at Redbox, and um, I hope you enjoy yourself, because I sat through all two hours, two and a half hours, and I said, somebody wrote this, somebody financed this, somebody paid Jeremy Irons what I'm assuming is a ridiculous amount of fucking money to show up and act this. Questions, questions. That's a surrealist masterpiece right there in in the snowman vein. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> All right. I have nothing else to add. So <laughs> happy to help. Happy to give that movie another dollar fifty it doesn't deserve. <laughs> there you go. All right. Well, I will watch the snowman this week. I still haven't seen it, but I'm gonna Do make it, it my goal. I'm doing it. Um, but let's talk about what we have been watching lately. Um. There's a lot of stuff that we just never get around to covering. So, Lauren, you wanted to talk about the Final Girls Berlin Festival? Yeah, I've been, uh, for the past two years, I've had an opportunity to cover remotely, uh, because I'm not in Berlin, the uh, Final Girls Berlin Film Festival, uh, which is a horror film festival featuring uh, female filmmakers and writers. It's primarily does shorts although there are I think quite a few more features this year than there were last year even um I've seen some really interesting films here you know I wasn't really that interested in shorts for for a while but then but horror films are actually short uh the short film format is uh, perfect for the horror genre because you can tell what are basically very short scary sometimes funny horror stories um in you know 15-20 minutes and produce some very interesting work. There's always been at least one short that I've just been really overwhelmingly impressed by. Uh, last year I was really impressed by uh, a movie called Goblin Baby, which I continue to say needs to be a feature film. Please, someone give this woman like the money to make this into a feature-length film. It would work perfectly. This year, uh, so far one of my favorites is a, a short called What Metal Girls Are Into which is uh, directed by Laurel Vale. It's about three uh, metalheads who are heading to a heavy metal music festival. They wind up staying in an isolated house somewhere in the desert because of course they do. There's no cell service or Wi-Fi service because of course there isn't. And the proprietor is a very creepy and overzealous young man who basically opens his conversation with them by asking them why they won't smile. Uh. It, the, the, then they end, so they go into the house, they find something very disturbing in their refrigerator and they have to make a decision about what they're gonna do. 
So without revealing too much, I do have to say that this is one of the most satisfying films I have seen recently. And it is, you know, again, at the time of Me Too, at the time where we're all feeling like uh, very mad and very annoyed with the behavior of men and the creepiness of men, this is honestly like a perfect film. If you can find it online, find it at uh, Final Girls, you know, send messages to the director, something like that. It's 15 minutes long. It is so worth it. And it is so satisfying. Like, please. Uh, yeah, it's it's been a really interesting experience so far. And it's wonderful to see female directors being showcased. And I've said before that um, women are the future of the horror genre. And they really are. Like, all of these filmmakers are doing interesting shit. Far more interesting than most than what most white dudes are up to. Awesome. Uh, Kristen, how about you? What have you been watching lately? I get to follow that up with an actual horror film. Um, I, no, I've been I've been watching a lot. Um, still still working my way through the filmography of Ida Lupino. Um, I'm in the 40s, which is good. Um, got to watch a bunch of Adrian Lyne movies this week, so I finally got to see Flashdance for the first time. Spoiler alert, I thought it was the biggest piece of shit I'd ever seen, but <laughs> I know that if uh, you were a fan of it in the 80s, you had a reason that's cool not a fan um long story short she did not deserve that that spot in the school okay some poor probably better dancer lost her spot because jennifer beals body double did some break dancing and tried to hump a dance floor i like no that's not dance girl okay whatever uh, but i went and saw winchester too in between all of that um and we had talked about Winchester uh, when the trailer came out, and I know, Karen, I think you and I were going to be interested to see how this movie would play with people who did not know about the Winchester Mystery House, which is in San Jose. Right. Um, and I can tell you, part of what makes the Sarah Winchester legend so fascinating, I think, to, to me at least, was hearing about it from friends who had told me about going. Um, you know, you, you, we have a lot of houses in California that have these rich histories, and with them the concept of like haunting and it's always great to hear you know the modern day equivalent of a ghost story you know um and i think what makes the sarah winchester story so so rich was the concept of whether she had been driven insane by this guilt she felt um and thus that turned into constructing this mansion or if she genuinely felt that she was being plagued by demons i mean the 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 concept is terrifying that does not make for a terrifying horror film um, because the, this movie is not interested in ambiguity and psychological questioning. Um, it's directed by the Spirit Brothers who did Predestination, which was really good. And they also did Jigsaw last year, which I did not see. Um, and this is just a typical B-level Blumhouse movie. Um, it's not, this is not The Conjuring. This is not anything James Wan would have directed. Um, actually, it might have been Once Upon a Time, um, but the way it plays out is it's not. Um, you have the, the movie is presented through the eyes of a male skeptic, played by Jason Clark, who I miss the days, you know, I forgot how much I love period pieces with laudnomatics. <laughs> I was like, <laughs> yes, he's on laudanum, let's watch this movie, no. Um, so he's this, uh, this doctor who himself is riddled with guilt over his wife's suicide, and you're like, oh god, we're gonna unify them. Um, he goes to the Winchester house, and Helen Mirren is Helen Mirren. She's incredibly sane. 
there is no there's when you watch movies about characters that are you want to have some sort of psychological ambiguity to them you need to have some type of paranoia established sarah winchester's like oh no no i know what i'm seeing is real it's completely logical everybody indulges me and acts very logically in response um so there's really no fear that she is insane that's that's relevant um and it's even more relevant once literal fucking ghosts show up um Uh. yeah the movie sets itself up like it might be hearkening to like 70s horror something like the sentinel maybe um or the hammer films and again you could do literal ghosts not with a pg-13 though for a movie about a rifle company this is incredibly there's no blood there's no gore which would have actually helped because the color palette in this is really drab um the ghosts are obviously cgi the the big bad which again most of the people that were murdered by the winchester rifle in large numbers were native americans there's one 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 american two black people and the rest of i guess winchester white guys um and of course the villain of the movie the big like uh big baddie of this film is a white guy a white confederate that you're supposed to feel bad for which i was like "Mm, nope i'm good um there's no stakes there's no horror it's just jump scares um and we're pretty much saying that if you know somebody who is psychologically disturbed they're probably right like they're probably seeing something it reminded (laughs) me a lot of lights out which i again had a really good trailer and a really good premise it worked better as a short than it did as a feature length um i mean the the frustrating thing was that i know the winchester mystery house and it could have made a really fascinating psychological horror film this is not looking for that this is looking for a cheap thrill on a january day when you have nothing to see um the more interesting moment that i thought was actually could have been interesting apparently ghosts were responsible for the 1906 san francisco earthquake the way it is edited (laughs) the earthquake well it's an earthquake if you don't live in california you won't immediately recall oh it's set in 1906 it's set near san francisco oh yeah it's the 1906 earthquake you are not gonna get that um so the way it is edited this earthquake happens but it's also at the same time that helen mirren is fighting the big bad so you're like the ghost created this earthquake and then at the end there's a title card that says the 1906 earthquake was the dead so wait they were responsible for the deadliest earthquake what is going on um the acting's good that's about all the nicest thing i can say the production design they did not film in the winchester mystery house so they rebuilt it that was really cool to see um because i've unfortunately never been it's not handicap accessible um but i was bored i was bored for long stretches and this movie is only 99 minutes with trailers it's almost about two hours and i was like the trailers were better sorry so yeah this is not something that you're uh, watching on Redbox. that's the nicest thing i can say makes me so sad because when i first heard that they were doing this film and that helen mirren was playing sarah winchester i was so excited and then when i saw their first trailer i saw where they were going and the i was problem like is, oh my gosh guys they such want a her to be winchay and that's yeah. not what you want with a winchester movie this is not some like apparently sarah winchester actually was a psychic uh, she really wasn't but yeah we say she is um so she's just lynn shay and they couldn't they wanted a i guess more bankable star i don't know missed opportunity 
It is, because this could have been an awesome psychological film, and I'm really disappointed that they just went with the straight-up ghost horrors. So, it's too bad, but... Um, let's see, what have I been watching this week? I have actually not been to a theater... Well, okay, no, I did see The Disaster <laughs> Artist again, but... Um, <laughs> But uh, that was because I went with someone who had not seen it before. Um, but actually, I've been watching a lot of TV lately. So, like we mentioned last week, I had, ta- I had watched uh, Marvelous Mrs. Maisel and loved it. This week was the season finale of a show, a network comedy that I actually really enjoy, and that is The Good Place. Have you guys ever watched no, it? No, but I know everybody loves it. No. Oh my gosh, it's so good. So Kristen Bell plays this this woman who, in the first season, she the very first episode, she wakes up, finds out she has died, and she's in the good place. And Ted Danson is the architect. And essentially, it's the this show, like, you go to the good place or the bad place after you die based on how many points you got during your life. And you get points for doing good things. And... So she finds out she's in the good place, and they're like, congratulations, let me introduce you to your soulmate, because everyone's assigned a soulmate, and all this, and she's like, as soon as she, as soon as Ted Danson's character leaves, she's talking to this guy, Chidi, who's her soulmate, and she's like, okay, so we've got a problem, I never did any of these things that they're saying I did to deserve to be here, they have the wrong Eleanor, so... The whole first season is her trying to figure out what to do about the fact that she's in the good place and she should be in the bad place. <laughs> so, <laughs> but then there's this twist at the end that's like, just, wow, you just, it's awesome. And so season two was dealing with that twist. I don't want to say too much because I think people should watch it and, and just give it a shot because it's, it's really fun to watch. And, but season two goes a completely different direction from season one. It takes some big twists and turns that I didn't expect. And it's just really fun. It's really funny. The cast is great. Um, I thoroughly love it. One of the reasons, because you know, network comedies tend to be problematic because they have 22 episodes to fill in a season. And so there's a lot of episodes that are just fluff, filler, not very good. But... One thing that NBC is doing really well with The Good Place is that their seasons are 16 episodes. So they have less time to get to the point, and they do. They they get there. So that's why it's a lot of fun, and just, it's it's good casting. It's, it's just an all-around enjoyable show. And yeah, season two just ended this week, so I'm excited to see where they go for season three. So, um... That's about it. So that's going to wrap us up for episode 21. Can't believe we've been doing this for 21 weeks, you guys. This Yay. is amazing. Oh, my God. Isn't it crazy? What, what does everybody have on <laughs> tap for screenings or movies for the coming week? Yeah. Um, I am seeing Thoroughbreds this week. Oh, Godspeed. Which I knew you didn't love, but I've heard mixed things. So I'm just going to go in there with fresh perspective and see what happens um i get to go see 50 shades freed on wednesday <laughs> my my mom i think i win my mom uh, <laughs> actually stopped working nights so she's like she's all gung-ho to go to a screening now because she can actually go to them she was like what's the first one i'm like 50 shades freed she's like we should go i'm like mom we went and saw the f- we paid money to see 50 shades of gray when it came out 
and we laugh the entire time. She's like, yeah, but we're completists. We should we should get the second one, catch up, and then go see the third one. Um, so I told her, okay, so I, I guess we're gonna go. <laughs> this is the penance that I, this is the price I have to pay to go see Black Panther, apparently. <laughs> <laughs> That's next week. I yeah, I go see that. Black Panther on uh, the 13th, and Hey, me too. I, if they need to stop with the previews for that, because every time I see Michael B. Jordan, I just think, I haven't binge-watched his stuff. I should. <laughs> <laughs> yes, And I really should. don't want to watch Fantastic Four, so. <laughs> <laughs> no. Lauren, do you have any screenings or anything this week? Uh, I've been sitting on a bunch of screeners that I really need to watch. One of them is... Um... This documentary, Seeing is Believing Women Direct, which is about female directors, uh, which I'm sort of intrigued to, to see. And I'm actually seriously considering going to see Winchester tomorrow. <laughs> Do it. I'll probably get there this week, too. I also have um, all the Oscar-nominated short films to watch this week, so I'm very excited to dive into those. So, And then on Friday, I was invited to... a party by the people who did the documentary Icarus, which is up for best documentary feature. And they're doing this um, Olympic opening ceremony party, so that'll be fun. I'm excited. Cool. Yeah. So, alright. Well, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Um, we love having you with us. We love when you send questions and comments. You can rate, review, subscribe to our podcast, which you can find at citizendame.podbean.com. You can also find us on iTunes, which if you are listening on iTunes, please, please give us a quick rating. If you have a little extra time, give us a review. All of that helps us out, helps other people to find our, our show. Um, you can also find us on Stitcher Radio and all kinds of other places. We are on Twitter at CitizenDamePod. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash citizendame. We also have our brand new website. It's a couple weeks old, citizendamepod.com, where you can find a little bit of extra commentary on other things, like Lauren's amazing review of The Snowman. We and also have we, top fives, and... We do. Kristen is starting to kick off our first monthly series, What I Did for Love. I get to write about Charlie's Angels, Full Throttle... And she pretends to be horrified, but really she loves every not... minute. She's really excited. <laughs> I'm just excited to remember how horrible it is. And remind myself, Justin Thoreau did this to me. So, there's that. That's right. And uh, next week, Kristen, or, sorry, Kim should be back and she'll be able to tell us all about how much she loved Donald Gleason and Peter Rabbit and whether those two love <laughs> Lovebirds finally got together in the end. Oh, yeah. They definitely, he definitely <laughs> fucked that rabbit at the end of it. Okay, the question is whether he eats the rabbit afterwards. Okay, I think the rabbit's gonna eat him, but whatever. <laughs> yeah. The point is, Twist. yeah, somebody's definitely gonna fillet somebody. Okay, fillet. That's what I said. Fillet. <laughs> All right, well. Is that really what That is said? really what I said. I, I, as soon as it came out of my mouth, I was like, oh, God, that could really be wrong if I put an A in there. Uh, I think I'll isolate that vocal and <laughs> put it on a loop at the end of this episode. <laughs> um, 
But you can follow Kim Pierce on Twitter and find out her reactions to Peter Rabbit and everything else. She is at kpierce624. Kristen, where are you? You can hear me talking about weird things with animals at Twitter at Kearney's underscore film. Lauren? I am at LH Business. And I am at Karen M. Peterson. So from all of us here at Citizen Dame, have a great week. Go watch some good movies. Go enjoy some bad movies. And we'll see you next week. I did say filet. (laughs) Your mission, should you choose to accept it. What the hell is he doing? Find it best not to look. Gonna fillet somebody. Gonna fillet somebody. Gonna fillet somebody. Gonna fillet somebody. Gonna fillet somebody.